Welcome to Rebalancing Act. Thank you so much for listening in today. We are Leslie Ann Seatmore and Karen Waterhouse, two law grads and friends. We know that climate change is here and that we have to solve it. So every second Friday, we talk about how Canada can get there. If you like our content, please follow us at Rebalancing Act on Instagram and Facebook. And Rebalancing Act, with a little underscore, on Twitter. You can also visit our website at rebalancingact.ca. And please, please, if you like our content, rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is you listen to podcasts. Today, we'll be talking to Erin Thornell, a friend I met while doing my Ocean Path Fellowship at the Cody Institute. And we'll talk energy, co-ops, and energy democracy. So my name is Aaron Thornell. I use he him pronouns. I am currently the acting general manager for the Ottawa Renewable Energy Cooperative, as well as its parallel organization, the Co-Energy Cooperative. I'm working from Ottawa or uh, unceded Algonquin Anishinaabe territory. Really excited to be here. I know you've tried to explain this to me before, but how exactly <laughs> does an energy co-op work? Yeah, it's a great question. And and believe me, you're not the only one. I mean, we like to sort of joke that we have, you know, especially role that I began in, which was, you know, communications for the organization. There's a lot of things you have to explain uh, when you're talking about the work that we do. And first, you have to explain what a cooperative it is. Second, you have to explain sometimes even what renewable energy is, just define that oddly. Third, you explain what a renewable energy cooperative is. And then fourth, of course, you explain what our specific renewable energy co-op here in Ottawa is up to. So, you know, you go through those those hurdles uh, often enough, it becomes pretty uh, sort of ver- um, pretty familiar territories. Ultimately, what I, what I like to think of if, as far as what community and renewable energy cooperatives do is really a bridge, a vehicle for individual members of the community to invest directly and to put their money behind renewable energy projects and in so doing so you know driving the low carbon transition that we know we need here in Canada as well as you know the world over. It's sort of a combination of impact investment opportunities with community economic development with obviously renewable energy asset development uh, all sort of mixed into one. So the cooperative structure allows you know individuals from anywhere, you know, really to join. Individual cooperatives like our own will sort of place their own restrictions on who is eligible to become a member. Ours is geographically based. Uh, We're limited to Eastern Ontario sort of focus. Um, And that's sort of the Ottawa, Kingston area, broadly speaking. So that membership structure is, you know, similar to any other cooperative, one member, one vote very democratic, very flat sort of structure rather than a hierarchical lateral structure, I should say. It allows, you know, folks to have a say in the projects that the cooperative develops. Uh, It allows them to serve as on the board of directors uh, or in other technical capacities if they have that, those sort of backgrounds. Ultimately, the big vehicle, you know, the big sort of driver to be a member is it also gives you the the opportunity to invest directly in these. And of course, that's where the sort of impact investing comes into play. And as you know, we know that's becoming more and more of a thing that's driving people's investments, you know, investing in line with their values. Energy, renewable energy cooperatives are a really great example of that because, you know, the, the money is essentially, we're just, a, we're just an organization that pools that capital um, and then moves that money towards, you know, the development of a, of a project, you know, for the equipment, for the engineering work, for the, you know, design work as the case may be. And so, you know, ostensibly what we do and, and, you know, when we're talking about investment, we truly are talking about, you know, 
investment returns. We're not talking about donations. You know, we design and develop our own investment products for people to purchase. Those are, you know, short or long-term, depending on the sort of scope of the project and what the capital need of, of the project may be. And, you know, we work with, with other cooperatives, uh, you know, renewable energy cooperatives, other, uh, you know, financial institutions, credit unions and things like this that help us sort of hold these investment products in, in appropriate ways. And, you know, this is something that people can do, you know, with their SPs, their TFSAs. So, you know, what I really, one of the things that first attracted me to, to the organization was certainly the, this idea that, we know climate action is going to take a ton of effort, but it's also going to take a ton of money. Um, you know, we see these price tags on, on transitions. Just yesterday, the city of Ottawa, for example, passed its, its climate change master plan, and that came with a $57 billion price tag over 20 or 30 years. And that's obviously a ton of money. But when you consider that Canadians have, you know, roughly, you know, anywhere between 400 and 500 billion dollars sitting in their RSPs, that is really sitting there and being put towards, you know, maybe fossil fuel infrastructure development projects or things that may not align with their values, then you start seeing the opportunity for groups like ours to be able to mobilize that capital in climate action and in sort of climate justice ways. Um, so that's, in a nutshell, what our group does. I know that I got a little off track there at the end. And what is the return on investment like for these kinds of projects? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, we, we stay away from guarantees. That was one of the first things I learned in the world of investment. You don't make guarantees <laughs> on returns. But we, we do target, what we're targeting is a, a sort of a patient capital, as it's known, investment opportunity. So we're talking 20 years or, you know, uh, 10 years at the at the minimum. These are returns of, you know, somewhere between two and a half to 4% per year. So they're nothing, you know, they're nothing that is going to change your life necessarily. Uh, although morally, I think you'll feel you might sleep better at night. That's my opinion. But it, it really is sort of in line with something like, a, a, you know, a GIC investment where you're, you know, 20, 25, 30 years even where you've got that regular you know, rate of return year over year. And, and of course, the added benefit that you can see and, and, you know, visit the projects that you're actually investing. I would imagine it's a pretty safe investment because no matter what the world looks like in 10, 15, 20 years, we're always going to need energy of some sort. So yeah, and the sun will still be shining, hopefully. Uh, and that's <laughs> the good thing, you know, when we when we, you know, for example, during this COVID moment, like a lot of, you know, investments didn't maybe go as planned and, and that's no fault of the organizations that issued them. It's just, this is an unprecedented moment in history, obviously, but for us, you know, sun's still shining. Maybe we had some delays in, in new project development, but those were, you know, those were something we sort of account for anyway. So we're going to need energy. We know it's going to need to be renewable and, and the sun is a pretty reliable source of energy um, that we're just you know, not really harnessing maybe to the fullest of potential. So, yeah. You've talked quite a bit about solar. Are there other types of renewable energy that the co-op gets involved with, or I even saw some of the projects you're doing now are more like retrofits? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and our focus, the Ottawa Renewable Energy Co-op, OREC, as it's more commonly known, we focused on solar since our, since our incorporation in 2010. And, and really the reason for that is here in Ottawa and Eastern Ontario, we have a pretty good uh, solar sort of potential, less so with, with wind and other forms of renewables. Um, 
And so we also had a pretty good you know, set of expertise in terms of the folks who, who helped start the cooperative. So we, we definitely took the reins on, on the solar right off the bat. And that's just sort of how we've continued. You mentioned the energy efficiency side of things for sure. So in, in parallel to Oak, we started a separate uh, cooperative called CoEnergy that really is seeking to fill that void um, that we know is there. And that's, you know, as much as we need to pr- promote and develop new renewable energy generation assets, uh, we also need to be reducing our energy consumption overall, because as we shift away from fossil fuels, that means electrification. And that's going to uh, need mean a huge strain on our, on our distribution grids and our, uh, our generating capacity. And we don't want to have to slide back and, you know, introduce new fossil, you know, natural gas generation state plants or things like this. So that reality combined with the sort of maybe of organizations offering services in the energy efficiency space to smaller organizations like, you know, affordable housing providers, um, nonprofit organizations, charities, these kinds of groups, we felt that, you know, see what we can do in terms of, you know, a sort of adapting this community finance model to a more of an energy efficiency focus. And so that's where co-energy comes into play. They're really, you know, sort of two sides of the same coin in some respects. Um, yeah. That's actually really helpful because I was looking at the two of them and trying to figure out that difference and their relationship to each other because I'm trying to convince my mom to invest. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> Great. Now, the good thing about CoEnergy is actually anyone in Canada can join. So we've opened up that realm a little Ooh. bit more. Just putting it out there. <laughs> not to do, not to turn this into a, into a commercial, but it's, you don't have to invest if you want to become a member, becoming a member, you know, and, and this kind of gets, you know, the co-op structure is it's really, you know, you're lending your voice right to a collective that are advocating for this kind of thing. And of course people are part hmm. members of, of environmental NGO groups and, and charitable organizations that are also pushing the advocacy envelope. And we just see ourselves as another avenue for folks to do that. And of course, you know, the co-op structure lens has a couple other sort of perks to it that we think are, are important as well. I think I can say my time at the Cody was probably what sealed me as pro co-op because I'd never thought too much about them before. Yeah, yeah it's a, and that's funny you mentioned that because it's such a, like, it's, it's a relatively unknown business structure in the grand scheme of things. Like people just think of like nonprofit or your for-profit and, and obviously there's a lot of other, you know, things in between there, but um yeah, the Cody is a very, you're going to become familiar with co-ops after spending time with the Cody for sure. Yeah. More broadly, why do you think it's important for people to care about their energy sources and to get engaged in that kind of work? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, I think, especially here in, in Canada, we kind of, in, in certain parts of Canada, in, in urban environments in particular, we sort of take for granted you know, where our energy comes from. Uh, and I think, you know, that is something that people don't necessarily think about when they, you know, crank up the heat or turn on the AC. And I'm not, you know, just not shaming folks for doing that. Um, But I think it is important that we recognize that how we get that energy has consequences, um, sort of externalities that have never really been considered. Uh, And obviously the big one of that is, is, you know, the environment. Um, and obviously that's becoming more and more, you know, apparent to people and, and there's all kinds of talks about, talk about, um, you know, shifting away from fossil fuels, 
But I think what's, you know, especially kind of pointing about the work that the co-op is in a way is, you know, and by the way, this is a borrowed model from, you know, from parts of Europe where they've gotten this right, you know, for decades. Um, you know, so the Danish, um, the German model in particular. Um, and I think what, what that's all about is giving folks a chance to see where their energy is actually coming from, like see the wind turbine that's spinning mm-hmm. and knowing that that is, um, you know, keeping their, their house warm or their lights on. Um, I think there's just, it's, you know, a little more of a direct connection and there's, 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 there's less resistance certainly in terms of those kinds of projects. And when that's the case, take, you know, the, take it a step further and you're amplifying that when, when folks are actually the investors and the, you know, co-owners of those projects, you know, if someone sees a wind turbine, you know, spinning and they know that's, you know, paying their mortgage or, you know, putting into their pension, then, then the resistance becomes even less and then you become an advocate. Right. And so I think that that's what sort of the, the sort of whole energy co-op renewable energy co-op model does well, I think it sort of turns that, not in my backyard sort of sentiment on its head and, and it turns folks from, you know, um, um, being against these kinds of developments to really being for them and provided that they're done in a responsible and safe way, obviously. But, uh, yeah. So that's a little bit about why I think, uh, knowing where your energy comes from is, is important. Do you have a favorite project that the co-op has worked on or one that you thought was particularly interesting? It's a great question. I wouldn't. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't give you that one. No, it's there. okay. I mean, I like all of our <laughs> projects. I, you know, I, I like some of the earliest projects, which were developed, installed, and up and running before I joined the group. Are, were with you know affordable housing providers, um, and for me, that's a really um, a natural partnership. You know, and, and it's worth noting that those projects aren't feeding those buildings directly. Um, they were part of the province of Ontario's, um, you know, Green Energy Pro Act uh, and the Feed Tariff, um, you know, procurement system. So, so technically they're feeding the, the electricity grid, but still I think the, the idea behind that of, of a renewable energy cooperative uh, working with, you know, in some instances housing cooperatives and in other instances just, uh, not just, but nonprofit housing providers. I think that's a really natural partnership. And for me, um, pushing that forward as we are now entering into different sort of uh, different sort of landscapes as far as how solar can be installed uh, is a really important sort of partnership to maintain um, because I think um, there's there's so much tied in with how how. How do affordable housing providers, you know, ensure that their buildings remain affordable? It's by, you know, sourcing the energy sources that are quickly becoming the most affordable energy sources, right? So uh, I think that's a really important sort of thing to keep in mind. And, and I guess for those reasons, those projects stick out of my mind. It's worth mentioning one of, my, one of the ones that, that I was around for, which was with the Museum of Science, of Science and Technology. Uh, and that one, you know, just by virtue of working with that group was really exciting. It's, a, you know, seemingly a very natural partnership. Uh, but of course, they are a crown corporation. They're operated by a, a federal crown corp. And so 
working with them, navigate, how do we make this project make sense, both you know, economically, how do we make sure it you know, is, is in check and in line with all the regulations that they have to obey. And, and what was exciting about that one was that's the first project that we did that is directly supplying you know, that institution with, with electricity. So that's directly offsetting their monthly consumption. So um, for us, that was an exciting project to get, uh, to get completed. And it was, it was our most recent one as well, just uh, finished it last summer. So pretty, or two summers ago now, I guess, July, 2019. I was gonna ask you what makes you so excited about energy cooperatives, but I feel like you've been very excited about most of the things we've talked about today, which is great. Cause that makes me seem like you press really like your job. <laughs> I do. I feel, and I feel really lucky too. Yeah. Uh, is there something that we haven't talked about that you find really exciting about energy cooperatives you want to share or just anything else that you haven't talked about about cooperatives that you want to share? Yeah. I mean, I, one thing that comes to mind, which I usually like to talk about is, is the concept of energy democracy. Um, and that's something kind of, we, we floated around it earlier, but it's the idea that folks should have a say in where their uh, their energy comes from. Not only should they, I think, understand where it comes from, but they should actually have a say in where it comes from. And, and I think you know the co-op is isn't by no means are we taking over you know the utility uh, sphere, um, but we are you know pushing and working towards more innovative and more uh, democratic models of energy generation and. The province of Ontario is is slowly catching up with those kinds of things these days, with with changes to policy that 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 do a great job of opening the doors to more direct avenues for individuals to to sort to have a choice in where they source their uh, energy uh, from. You know, my wildest dream would be that folks can essentially invest in uh, a project with us, and then they can you know essentially have a, a portion of their of that energy that's produced, you know, be delivered virtually, of course, directly to them and and have that offset their their monthly utility bill directly. Um, we're not there yet from a policy perspective, but we are getting there slowly but surely. So uh, and that's you know that's not an uncommon model. That's the the model that's being used in in lots and lots of parts of the United States and parts of Europe and stuff like that. So I think we'll get there eventually. And and I think what it really excites me to be a part of an organization that is I think well positioned to provide a very community based uh, avenue for people to to get involved with that kind of thing. So. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I really love that idea. And I really like that that's your your big dream and that it seems achievable. Hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> and hopefully. I hope you get to achieve it. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. Well, you, yeah, um, we, we're getting there for sure. <laughs> is there anything else about the co-ops that you want to plug for our listeners to hear? Do you want to, do you have a little, anything else you want to touch on? I, I would just say, you know, Join if you're able to. Um, we're, we're trying to sort of shift folks to joining co-energy because we certainly see there being maybe more opportunities for uh, investment uh, on that side. And, and that's ultimately a big drive why people join. But I would say if you have the ability to join, it's $50 for one time for a lifetime membership and you, you're adding your voice sort of to uh, the uh, to the to the low carbon transition movement, I think, and um, and we're always you know the door is always open for us for, to take suggestions on where projects might be might be able to be implemented. Of course, we are focused. You know, project development is very much focused on 
on uh, our corner here of Eastern Ontario, but uh, but we like hearing about all, any and all ideas. So if uh, if folks have those, feel free to send them my way. So Kieran, as I told you, this episode was originally intended to be about Ontario's energy mix and the way we generate energy in Ontario until I talked to Aaron. And so I've known Aaron Thornell for, oh gosh, three or four years now, and I've known about his work. But this time when we talked about it, he said something that really hit me differently. He talked about the concept of energy democracy. Had you ever heard of that before? Uh, Not in a formal sense, but the idea definitely resonates with me. Yeah, and I think it might be, maybe it's the place I am in my life, and maybe it's the place the world is in as we're recording this. Toronto's just entered another COVID lockdown. Everyone is still, well, not everyone, many people are still working remotely. We're not seeing each other, and a lot of things just feel out of control. And it's really hard to be feeling engaged about pushing for a low-carbon future, pushing for climate action when it can be hard to feel really, feel hopeful with everything going on like this. But the conversation we had about energy democracy made me feel hopeful in a way something hasn't in a long time. And I think it's because I always thought of energy systems as something that really were within government control and that we couldn't do much about other than just pressure governments. But the way the co-op Aaron works for functions and the work they do is, in a way, energy democracy and bringing that into the world. And so it really made me feel hopeful in a way I haven't in a really long time. Definitely. This is such an interesting conversation for me because as someone that grew up in Toronto my whole life, energy has never really been a political issue. It's just a bill that you receive alongside your other bills and you pay it and oh maybe you know my dad liked keeping I think the thermostat at I want to say 17.5 and I was told to put on a sweater but that was pretty much the extent of my relationship with the energy that my family consumed and then when I worked in the Ministry of Energy and it was just interesting to see the relationship that different parts of Ontario have to their energy bills and how It's not apolitical for many people. It's actually an equality issue, and it's something that affects their lives. The high price of energy can be debilitating. So I think that that was a really big awakening moment for me, realizing that energy is political, and the way that we consume energy currently advantages some groups and disadvantages other groups. And there are definitely people that will benefit from having situations and having structures set up that are maybe not what we currently have, but like definitely can put more control in their hands over the type of and amount and price of energy being consumed. I think that's really a really good way of putting it and really accurate. The idea that energy consumption isn't apolitical, that it absolutely is political in so many ways. And I think that that really speaks to the concept of energy democracy because I thought it was really interesting reading about how energy democracy is defined because it can seem like kind of a nebulous idea, the fact that we should have a say in our energy. And what seemed to be a common definition that I found was that energy democracy has three broad goals that are to resist the dominant energy agenda 
and to reclaim and restructure the energy sector while pursuing high levels of renewable energy development. And that, that these goals, the way to get there that people have been identifying are things like decentralizing and distributing economic and political power, creating new alliances between social groups, normalizing the social and public control of energy production and consumption, strengthening the power and capacity for communities to control energy systems, developing new organizations and ownership models and financial investment systems for energy production. And so these really directly talk about not only renewable energy and environmental solutions, but also inherently addressing that idea of how because our energy system is inherently political for some people, more, for some people more than others, but political, it also addresses the need for equality and stronger communities and community say in developing these energy systems. Because like you said, for some people, your energy bill is just that, just another bill to, play, to pay. But in some areas of Ontario, your energy bill can be the biggest bill you have to pay because you're paying because of where you live, you're paying for delivery fees that can be even more than the actual energy you're using because you're in a rural area or a remote area. And you could be paying for energy that you know is coming from a source that you fundamentally disagree with. And you don't have a lot of options. You don't have a lot of control. And I think the idea of yeah, and I think we bringing really in that level of control again and empowering people and empowering communities such an important solution to that idea. Of so frequently this debate over rural versus urban energy delivery and the disparity in prices versus the delivery fees is positioned as both groups of people sometimes being upset that they feel like they're either being disadvantaged due to their geographic area and the fact that Canada is big and of course it'll cost more to have to deliver energy to more rural areas but then also we want people to live in those areas so we should be subsidizing that in some way and we should be being you know we should be trying to make that possible and then the other side of the debate where people feel as if they're subsidizing or they're paying for someone else's energy i find that these kinds of getting caught in the weeds kinds of pitting these two groups against each other really misses i think maybe larger opportunities available through structures like energy co-ops that really find a way to undercut this debate and provide some clarity and provide new and different options for people that maybe we hadn't thought about before, but maybe can, you know, cut through a lot of this animosity I find between different groups. Maybe it shouldn't just be this back and forth about who is subsidizing who or who deserves what prices, but what kind of models of energy and community engagement can we have to make everybody's energy cheaper and better and for smaller communities that are more rural put more control back into their hands. Yeah, I think that's, it's really true. And I think part of that is not only that idea of putting energy back in the hands of the local community, the choices around energy and the energy generation itself in some ways to bring that more local because not all forms of renewable energy work everywhere, but every form of renewable energy works somewhere. And so by putting that power back in local communities, you can give that power to communities to choose the renewable energy that works for them and power their community recognizing that that same decision might not have been made if it was being made on a provincial wide scale because that renewable energy may not work on that scale for this province. And so I think not only 
giving that power back to make the decisions for the local population, for that local community is so important. But also, I think what you're saying about how there is that divide that becomes created around the idea of subsidizing certain people's energy use or other people paying incredibly high rates for their energy use just because of where they live. I think it's really interesting if you consider the fact that energy isn't something we have a right to. We don't have a right to energy, which is incredible when I think about it, because we use energy for everything in our lives, to light our homes, to heat our homes, to keep our food not moldy and awful, to refrigerate our food, to keep our food the way it should be, um, to cook our food. And while it is possible to live without energy, even for long periods of time, is that a standard of living we want to have be the default for people in our communities? I don't think it is. I don't think it is if we want people to be able to be living a good life. And I think energy democracy also provides a platform for the idea of considering energy as something everyone should have access to and promoting that on a scale that allows for people to make that happen in a way that we haven't seen in our provincial political discourse or even our national political discourse. Totally. And I think this is honestly an international issue applying all across the world. And it's really salient at this moment when currently so many communities are paying higher prices for dirtier energy when there are options and there are structures available to pay lower prices for cleaner energy. And that's just the truth of it at this point in time. I think about a documentary I watched and it was talking about microgrids in Bangladesh and how those are actually really advantageous because first thing, a lot of the energy, a lot of the dirtiest energy is used by people who are living in poverty because they don't have access to cleaner forms of energy and they're forced to rely on um, frequently on cook stoves which are burned in like which are burned in houses that don't have great ventilation and then that creates really poor air quality in the house and that also has the added side effect of deforestation as well and what else are people supposed to do? That's exactly what I would do if I was living in that situation because you need energy. The idea that these, uh, you know, there are all sorts of places in the world as exemplified in this documentary by Bangladesh and their decision to start using solar microgrids, which has the advantage of providing a cleaner source of energy than cook stoves, but also a more resilient source of energy because solar microgrids are fascinating because in the event of a natural disaster, which Bangladesh is unfortunately extremely vulnerable to, the opportunity to restart the grid is really easy and it's really fast and it's not affected by uh, by incidences or occurrences in other part of the country if one community is microgrid. So I think the advantages, the debates, all of this is so crucial at this point in time and also so relevant to everyone, not just Canadians. Yeah, I think you're right. I really like the idea of microgrids for not only the demo- the energy democracy perspective, but exactly what you're saying. The idea that it allows for a dispersal of energy generation and for when there are issues in the grid, it allows for only local impacts, which, yeah, still sucks if you're the area that is hit. But when you think about some of the 
Like, I don't know if you remember, I think it was 2001, the massive blackout in Ontario, Quebec, and I think New York State. Yeah, 2002. Like, the yeah, the idea that one issue can cause such catastrophic impacts on such large areas is really scary when you think about our reliance on energy, when you think about healthcare and hospitals and grocery stores and the way we rely on energy, I think anything that minimizes the potential for large-scale suffering because of a lack of energy is really important to consider as well, especially in Canada where to have our one grid reach across the country is really challenging and is an expensive infrastructure project, but microgrids can provide a little bit of a solution to that. Absolutely, and I know that the main criticism that I've heard, which I think is valid of microgrids, is that you don't want to create a situation where the wealthy are able to afford microgrids and they opt out of the grid, making the grid less good overall and less reliable for those that can't afford to opt out. But I think that, you know, to the point of energy democracy, the idea of cooperatives is actually really a salve to this situation. It's I think it shows that if we think innovatively enough to have microgrids, we can also think innovatively enough to address the issues that they pose because no solution is ever perfect. Absolutely. I really love the co-op structure for this kind of work. As you heard Aaron and I talk about, we were both kind of co-op converts from our time at the Cody Institute, which was not an intentional alliteration. (laughs) But Um, excellent nonetheless. Thank you. And I just want to talk a little bit about co-ops as a structure and particularly the Cody model uh, because the Cody model comes from a man named Moses Cody and people who were working with him back in the 1860s in Antigonish and other parts of Nova Scotia. And I don't agree with everything Moses Cody taught, but I really like the co-op structure that came out of this moment in time. One of the really big focuses was the idea of removing the middleman from the economy for folks who were, for example, fruit growers, fishermen, farmers, things like that, removing the middleman so that they would be retaining more of the profits of their work. And because early co-ops failed due to poor management, issues around uh, good business practices and the education of folks involved, when they developed this model... The big focus was on adult education. Inherent in their co-op structure was the expectation that there would be ongoing adult education, there would be study groups, with the idea being that before you could start a co-op, you would be involved in these study groups, you would develop the skills and knowledge and education required to successfully manage a co-op, and then continue to build that education and pass it on to other people once you were running your co-op. In order to empower the community to be able to manage these co-ops, manage these economic structures within their community, build them and be successful. And it was about setting each other up for success, which is something that you don't always see. And I don't think it's out of a desire to see people fail. But I think when we talk about some of these solutions, we think about someone going in, helping a community set up a co-op and then leaving. We don't think about how to make these things sustainable long-term. And so through this partnership with the University of of St. Francis Xavier and what eventually became the Cody Institute, what at that time was called the Extension Department, 
and Moses Cody and other folks who were working with him. By 1932, there had been a formation of 179 study clubs with 1,500 members in Nova Scotia. And over the next six years, during the height of Cody's work in these villages, study clubs rose to 1,100 with 10,000 participants that formed eventually 142 credit unions, 39 cooperative stores, 17 cooperative lobster factories, 11 cooperative fish plants, and 11 other co-ops. And it, it is, and I really think, I mean, I don't have any evidence to support this, but I personally think that that idea of adult education and the focus on supporting and empowering the community to run these co-ops has to have been a big part of the success of these. And I think it's something that I really love seeing in co-ops and has so much potential in the idea of energy co-ops to be building the capacity of communities to then make their own decisions about energy, especially as we're talking about the idea of microgrids. Definitely. I think to draw on the larger political moment that we're living on right now and then more broadly just have been, the idea of alienation in politics and the power of its force, I think, and then the political outcomes that we're seeing as a result of that alienation are so powerful and are so present. And it's scary and it's hard to understand what exactly to do about it, especially when you're talking from the perspective of national politics. But I think that the autonomy and the pride that co-ops give and the enfranchisement, you know, really the opposite of what we're seeing right now, are so valuable and are so crucial. And just, I think, in the case of the Cody Institute, the numbers speak for themselves. But I really think that that lesson can be drawn more broadly to apply to all sorts of other things that we're facing right now. Absolutely. I just love the idea of seeing co-ops everywhere. I would love for everyone's energy to be coming through an energy co-op, but I would love to see see co-ops being reinvigorated as a structure, both economic and political in our communities, because I think it really speaks to what we've talked about before around civil society and how civil society can play such a big role in politics and in climate solutions. And co-ops are a great example of civil society that benefits one's community in a really tangible way. Definitely. And I think the idea that discourse the discourse created by co-ops is valuable for the, to the ends that it brings one, but then it's also just valuable as the process itself. So I remember this conversation is reminding me of an article that I'll post in the show notes, and it's about a co-op in New York, I believe, and it's a grocery co-op where everyone has to work a certain amount of hours a week in order to shop there. And it's highly successful, and the decisions that the grocery co-op makes from whether what cheese and the thing is the prices are good the prices at this co-op for nice cheese are just incredible and people really like their you know i think people have come and gone and said it's not right for me i don't have the time to contribute i'd rather to pay i'd rather pay more but for some people they say i do have the time to contribute i like the community and i mean i think the crux of the story was about some of the problems that the co-op structure arises but i think that In highlighting those problems, it also just highlighted the engagement that the co-op provided. So, for example, they were having a big debate over whether to use cutlery and stuff that was... It was like cutlery that 
would have been biodegradable, but then took more energy to make versus cutlery that was made from fossil fuel plastic, but took less energy to make. And regardless of where you fall on the outcome, I think the fact that people were so engaged about the debate just shows the just shows the power of the fact that a co-op can have on discourse because it actually provides people an arena to talk about these issues where they feel like their voices are being heard. And this is a grocery co-op. Have you ever watched Broad City? No. <laughs> There's an episode about that co-op. I'm assuming it's based off of that co-op. I would assume so. And shenanigans ensue when one of the characters can't make it to her shift at the co-op because of work. So her best friend goes and like pretends to be her working at the co-op because she wanted to keep being a member that badly. It was that great, which I think is really a testament to co-ops. I think the cheese prices. Yeah, the cheese and also I think cheese. The cheese prices were really Man, good. I do love good local cheese. I really do. I know. She's yeah. just as a, I hope that they create more climate-friendly cheese versions, but I also personally respect the decision to eat nice cheese. Yeah. I feel like maybe all of the other climate work we do balances out our cheese consumption. Hopefully. Totally. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just love it. Oh, it's so good. Co-ops are great. I'm very pro-co-op, if that was not clear. Absolutely. Especially there are so many climate solutions that you can't can't do with one person, but you don't need a thousand. You need like 15 people. And I think the co-op really highlights that. Yeah, I think you're right. And on that note, do you think <laughs> it's do you think it's time? I definitely think it's time. I want to know what note that was. <laughs> it was on the note of co-ops being a climate solution. Amazing. On that note. On that <laughs> note. Absolutely. I do think it's time for something a little bit fun. Like climate allies? Definitely climate allies. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate how I like sing that on a different note every time because I am tone deaf. <laughs> This week's Climate Allies, I think, are so exciting because they are Ugh. so underappreciated. Tell it to me. It's literally just large animals. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie Ann, large, give me a climate ally. What is it? Large animals. <laughs> but, like... Okay. She's not saying that medium and small critters aren't also climate allies, but I appreciate the highlight <laughs> for the large ones. And I'll get, well, I mean, I guess it depends on how you define large, but there are potentially some medium ones involved in this climate ally. Excellent. Medium to large animals. Yes. I was just thinking on, like, the bell curve of critters. There's a lot of really tiny critters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So, <laughs> there is research done that showed that Animals are helping fight climate change. And for ex one of the really powerful, literally, examples that they looked at were elephants. With the standard elephant population density we have today of about one per square kilometer, that translates to about 45 more tons of above ground biomass per hectare of forest that is storing carbon. And that's because 
as these elephants, you know, trot around, they are degrading and damaging certain types of vegetation and of plants. And that creation and de- degradation of certain types of plants as they stomp around and eat creates space for more slow growing but carbon dense plants to find their space and make their way up and out of the ground. And that increases the actual carbon storage in an area. For example, if forest elephants were to no longer exist or were to go extinct, the above ground biomass that stores carbon in their habitats would decrease by 7%, which... That's crazy. It's a pretty big number in the scheme of things. And this is just a fraction of what elephants could do, because... It's estimated that in the early 19th century, one million elephants lived in Central African forests, but that number is now down to just about 100,000. So imagine... That's tragic. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Not only for the carbon potential, but because elephants. If we conserve elephants, if we help protect the species, and we get that number up high again, think of all the additional carbon that we could be storing. That's incredible. And so... We're messing shit up. The animals are doing their best to fix what we did. But then we're making it harder for the animals to fix what we did. Animals are the real hero. And we should do better to protect them. I agree. And enable their flourishing. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, big, medium, and small-bodied animals. All critters. We love all critters in this household. What a great climate ally. Thanks for sharing, Leslie. Thank you. I thought they were pretty great, too. Thank you so much for listening in today. I wanted to give everyone a heads up that we'll be taking a break over the holiday. This will be our last episode that we release before January. But get excited because in January, we're doing something special. We're going to start a series of episodes that all do deep dives into fire, wind, earth, and water. So get excited for that. And thank you for listening as always.